Welcome to the Brew Files for Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and still less ukulele. In this episode, we go way back in time with Dr. Travis Rupp, the beer archaeologist. We're tackling the question of what is beer, what it has been over the course of human history, and what it means for us brewers today. Also, why did the Romans steal everything, including the Greek disdain for beer? But first, a message from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Up your IPA game with homebrewing techniques, craft beer clone recipes, and a free book from the American Homebrewers Association. Push your brews to the limits with Brewing Eclectic IPA by Dick Cantwell. Or dive into the science and history with IPA, brewing techniques, recipes, and the evolution of India Pale Ale by Mitch Steele. Join for one year and receive your choice from 60 different brewing books. Head to homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental for offer details. That's homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. down so sounds good right and so if i remember correctly at homebrewcon you're giving a talk on uh roman beer right or uh, that's correct yeah caesar um um been working on a piece that is pretty much ready for publication i just need to submit it um to a couple of academic journals it's on i've been trying to figure out where um the romans first came in contact with beer because clearly it's not a major part of their literary corpus and so um what i'll be talking about is where i think it came from and caesar probably has a lot to do with it well and of course that's a completely different topic than we normally would ever cover on this show so <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah travis why don't you introduce yourself to the audience sure uh my name's travis rupp i am uh the beer archaeologist i'm a uh, lecturer at the University of Colorado Boulder. I've been uh, there now for uh, about 15 years, uh, teaching kind of all things classical. So I teach Greek and Roman art and archaeology, Egyptology, ancient sports, um, courses on ancient food and alcohol, uh, mythology, all kinds of various things. You kind of name it. That, that's my bubble. That's my world. Um, but I also was a professional brewer for almost nine years at Avery Brewing Company. Uh, I left there in 2020, but before I did, I was um, running uh, the innovation team, research and development 
the wood seller um, was tasked with doing a lot of experimentation and creating new brands. And in 2021, January of 2021, I launched my own business called The Beer Archaeologist, which is dedicated to uh, researching ancient and historic beer production. Uh, it was up until recent, mostly just head in the books and doing a lot of the academic side of the research, but I did recently acquire a small pilot system. So I will be brewing these beers again very, very soon. Awesome. And my first thought is I can't decide which pays better. Uh, <laughs> hear the, uh, hear the quotes around the word better. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No kidding. It's like you're a teacher and a brewer. Hmm. You know, it's kind of a, it's, it's pretty dead even. Let's be honest. Yeah. I, I don't really ever know which ones do it is a better job either. Most of the time. So. <laughs> well, so how did you get into this sort of weird split thing? I mean, that's sure. Yeah. So, um, it really so I graduated from grad school at the University of Colorado Boulder in 2010, and uh, I was fortunately hired back by my colleagues now, um, the faculty there, to just be a, kind of an ad hoc instructor at the time, teaching mostly Greek art. And I was just teaching like one or two classes at a time, and so I needed to go get a real job, and I bounced around a little bit. I worked uh, for Apple for a couple of years and the corporate world was not for me. And it actually, it was my girlfriend who is now my wife uh, uh, who encouraged me to go into beer because I'd always been very interested in it. I'd started homebrewing with my dad when I was 19 in Iowa. He was always big into making homemade wine, but he knew I was in more interested in beer. So we were doing that. And so um I left Apple in 2012 and uh, applied to several breweries in Colorado, got hired at Avery. Uh, and I actually kind of worked from the from the very like introductory level to what I end up eventually running while I was there, which was I actually got hired as a bartender originally at Avery. Um, I had been offered a couple of other jobs in beer uh, that were more production oriented. But one thing that I very much valued about Avery, at least at that time, back in 2012, was they were very like uh, focused on education and their taproom staff were just unbelievable. They were brilliant. And uh, I really wanted to learn all the ins and outs of the industry because, you know, I thought maybe I'd own a brewery someday, that kind of stuff. And so um, I started as a bartender and it was only about uh, maybe 30, 60 days into my employment that I was approached by the production manager at Avery uh, and asked if I would do presentations for the production staff once a month on beer history. And I was like, wow, that's sounds really cool. Like, why are you asking me to do this though? I'm not a beer historian. And they're like, yeah, but you're a teacher, you're a professor, you should be able to, you know, dig up something on various topics. And we think it'd be really entertaining. And I'm like, sure, you know, I'll give it a go. So at, in the beginning, it started out as a very, um, kind of informal, uh, willy-nilly approach to beer history. I would just tap the production staff and say, like, what do you guys want to learn about? And they would give me topics, and I'd go research it for, like, 30 days, 60 days, and then um, give a talk. Well, as I got doing it more and more, I started to realize that, wow, there's, like, a lot of work to be done in this field. There, uh, there are major gaps in the history. It's poorly documented, especially when you get back as far as my world, where when I came out of grad school, I was a, I'm a, by trade a Roman archaeologist, so I mostly do Roman sculpture and architecture in the empire. But um, I started realizing that it just wasn't well documented, if documented at all. And so 
after about, uh, I think I was a bartender for about eight months and then I moved into production. I was actually about to be offered a job in sales and the production manager's like, no, your heart's in making the stuff, not selling it. Come work on the production side. And so I went into packaging, became a packaging supervisor, worked in special projects, um, recipe development, innovation, all that kind of stuff at Avery. And while I was doing it, I kept doing this research on beer history and but mostly to educate my peers at the brewery. Well, what started to happen was I started to formulate these storylines of, you know, like the story of uh, Bronze Age brewing needs to be told. The story of Egyptian brewing needs to be told. The, the story of ancient monastic brewing needs to be told. And so um, what happened, um, long story long here, I guess, um, to become the beer archaeologist was in 2016, um, while working as a, a member of the uh, research and development team and, uh, and experimental brewing, I was in special projects, we could brew whatever we wanted. And uh, I said, well, you know, I've been doing research on Bronze Age Greek brewing uh, for about three years now, I want to try to recreate some of these beers. And I'll be honest, when I did it, it was purely for selfish reasons. I just wanted to conduct the research. <laughs> and uh, little did I know, people were going to like come out of the woodwork for this stuff. I mean, like the first beer I did was called Nestor's Cup. It was a Mycenaean-inspired ale um, dated to roughly 1300 BCE. And I had like media sources contacting me. I had you know, literally um, national media sources like CBS and stuff wanting to hear about this beer. And uh, and then the Denver Museum of Nature and Science reached out to me and said, will you continue to do these for our traveling exhibits? And I said, yeah, hell yeah, this sounds awesome. And so um, over the course of four years from 2016 to 2020, I released 10 Ales of Antiquity, uh, as we called them at Avery. Uh, they were all beers that were historically inspired, I would get as close as I could to recreating an ancient beer, either by recipe or, or process. Uh, and kind of that's where the beer archaeologist was born. So when I decided um, it was time to start my own project in 2021, that's the direction I went. And that's where the beer archaeologist came from. Talk about creating your own niche. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and and that's definitely what happened, and it's kind of cool because I'm full time at the University of Colorado as well. I have been since uh, 2013, I believe, was when I first got my full time status, and they actually also kind of like it too because you know they're looking for faculty with really unique uh, niches or approaches to a field that, in many instances, has been overstudied, uh, and so it worked out really nicely. I mean, look, we we always argue that beer is a fundamental of human civilization right going all the way mm -hmm. back to that question of did did we stop roaming to go grow grains because we wanted bread or because we wanted beer right i mean that's an yep. old argument yeah so the fact that like you can you can start to actually seriously talk about it you know yeah i totally understand why people glom onto it beer is still important in daily life today and this gives a way to really make a connection back to people who are long in the past absolutely totally i couldn't agree more Absolutely. Now, speaking of people long in the past, one of the things, like reading through stuff from like Patrick McGovern, uh, who mm -hmm. people will know, like does all the molecular archaeology in a way uh, yep. to try and reformulate like what was in in a pot. Reading that stuff, it seems very clear to me that our ancestors kind of had what apparently feels like less strict guidelines on what they were fermenting. <laughs> yes. 
Most certainly. I mean, you see the stuff out of China. It's like, oh, yeah, that's got, you know, hawthorn berries, rice, honey, grapes, and barley in there. Yeah. It's like, so is there a point in time, like what we think of as beer becomes beer or has it, or is that a relatively recent thing? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question, Drew, because it's actually something that couldn't be more better time, that question for like what I'm working on, because the book I'm currently writing, um, is on this topic of defining beer. Like, how do we define beer historically? Because, uh, it has changed so much. I mean, uh, and, and there, you know, the, the macro breweries of the United States have worked to try to define it for us, mostly for their own marketing capabilities, right? And sales numbers. And we in the craft beer industry hate that, right? Or we as homebrewers hate that. We want to be able to make any kind of beer we want. We want to be able to be experimental and use all kinds of various adjuncts and ingredients. And looking at beer historically, it has always been a product that that incorporates a lot of different uh, ingredients, fermentables. Uh, and honestly, this idea of what, you know, if you look it up online, right, if you punch in what is beer or what's beer made of, you're going to find a lot of websites that'll say, well, it's, you know, water, uh, malt, hops, and yeast, right? That's one of the most common, you know, kind of anecdotes you're going to read. And the interesting thing to me about that is when we look at the full scale or scope of beer, so as of right now, beer is a 13,000-year-old beverage. And I say as of right now because it changes regularly, right? I, mm-hmm. I wrote an article for uh, the Oxford Classical Dictionary that came out in 2020, and it already needs to be updated and, and redone because, uh, unfortunately, uh, that what I had at that time said that beer was only about 11,000 years old. Well, then 2021, they find uh, evidence of brewing that dates from uh, uh, a cave in Israel – 11,000 BCE, so 13,000 years ago. And uh, all the way up until the Reinheitsgebot of the 16th century. So, you know, this this very early, you know, um, uh, very early 16th century, this this legislative movement by the Germans is actually what has kind of morphed beer or what most people think of as beer to be something that includes water, malt, and hops, actually, is all they said, right, in the Reinheitsgebot. They didn't even say yeast because they didn't know what it was. And uh, what I find fascinating about that is when you look at the, we're talking about 13,000 years of beer history, and those ingredients being kind of markers of what beer is, uh, that only lasts 500 years, right? Um, Or, you know, 500 to 600 years, um, which I think is well, actually, almost exactly 500, 500 and what, seven years now. And that's that's a pretty small blip on the radar uh, of beer history. Yeah, Denny, do you remember what the reaction was to the change at the time? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, uh, I, I, let me go, I gotta go find my stone tablet where I wrote it down. <laughs> well done. Yes. And, um, it's, it's uh, it's something that I find fascinating, and when we think about um, those so-called Bavarian purity laws, right? Um, the Reinheitsgebot, that term wasn't even coined until the 20th century, early 20th century, and and these purity laws were all motivated by political 
propaganda, right, and political motives. And uh, it's kind of curious that that has worked uh, in the favor of some of the large-scale breweries that still try to lean on that as what defines beer. But I think one of the beauties of beer, when you look at it for its full historical scope, is that there isn't this very clear-cut definition of beer. It's usually something, it's got to be brewed and fermented, right? So, you find you find whatever fermentable sugar sources you need to get there. You add whatever flavor additives you want to pr- produce a, a desirable quality in the beer, and you, you ferment it. And that is what twelve thousand five hundred years of the history promotes, as opposed to the last five hundred years have leaned on those those four ingredients. Well, the listeners will remember that a while back we did that whole series on uh, ale through the ages, uh, and you know over there. Colonial Williamsburg, and yep. you know, you go and you look at those recipes from back in that period of time. I mean, you would be hard pressed to call some of those beers beers as we think of beer today. Definitely, and I mean, I think that uh, that's where, like, I've had to work really hard in my research to kind of let my mind um, stop trying to silo everything. And tried to define it by these clear-cut parameters because if we do that, when it comes to beer, we're we're going to find that the uh, the variety of quote beers that exist is far smaller than we think of, right? I mean, you even look at uh, you know you, you pull up you know the BJCP, right? You look at the BJCP guidelines and you start going through all of these beers and the fact that every year we add new categories, right, or new subcategories to styles and it's to adapt to the consumer palate, but also to the craft brewers um, inventiveness of using atypical or odd ingredients to create new flavor profiles. And that's actually what has defined beer for the vast majority of history. I mean, the the earliest evidence right now for beer, this, this beer that uh, dates to uh, around 13,000 years ago, 11,000 BC in Rakafet Cave in Israel, um, a lot of the archaeobotanical analysis uh, and microbial analysis shows exactly what we would expect to see out of a modern brew. It's just they're using different Fermentables. I mean, one of the most striking things I think in the evidence has come out is that only about 38, I think it is, I have to go back and look at the article, but I'm pretty sure it's around 38% of fermentables that were found in that brew came from grasses or came from, you know, grains like uh, barley or wheat, where the rest of it was coming from tubers and legumes. And as, as you say, Drew, I mean, from modern perspective, we'd be like, wait, that's, that's a beer? You know, like, how do we define that as beer? But in the grander scheme of things, you can't define it as wine and you can't define it as mead or a spirit, right? And so it best qualifies and best, best fits into the category of beer, which has this very open definition. I, I almost kind of wonder, you know, because we always talk about, okay, so, uh, okay, it's got to have some sort of grain. It's got to got this, that, or the other. I almost wonder if beer is not just more of a process. With the yeah, fact yes. that, you know, we have to do a chemical mechanical process in order to break open starches in order to make a, make a product as opposed to say a wine or mead. Absolutely. You nailed it. And that's, a, that's 100% what I believe. Um, it's definitely what I've been writing about. Um, it's also like when I've been asked to do, uh, be kind of like more flex, I guess, my, my knowledge or my expertise in, in some of those realms of the ancient world. That's what I try to lean on too is that, 
uh, we're dealing with uh, a process, right? That's really what it comes down to. And and uh, in the end, as you pointed out, I, I, one of the beauties of beer, right, is that it, it requires so much of our involvement. Wine, you press your juice, you let nature take its course, right? Um, mead, you mix it with some water, let nature take its course. Beer, as you pointed out, we have to put it through this this enzymatic conversion. We have to be very hands-on with it, and it's the process more than the raw materials that defines the product. Denny's often a fan of saying that uh, malted barley wants to become beer. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and I kind of think – Looking at it this way, it's like, yeah, multiple really wants to become beer, but it's like the lazy teenager you have to kick in the pants. <laughs> <laughs> so, yep. One of the other things I say all the time on the show, because to your point about uh, talking about beer styles, and whatnot, is a lot of the beer history that we know has largely been made up by marketers. Yes. Right? Uh, over the years. And so my, my joke is always, you know, beer history is poor history. Yeah. <laughs> Take it either way, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was very amused when I thought of that one. Um, <laughs> given that, what do you feel like we get wrong about beer history as beer enthusiasts or brewers? That's an excellent question. I think there are, are a couple of things, but probably the most notable to me, and and this is what I try to teach my students about ancient food in general, is that I think too often we assume the ancients were dumb and didn't know what they were doing and that they were producing this stuff purely to survive, right? That they didn't have quality standards, that they didn't care about flavor, these kind of things. And that's uh, just a bunch of BS to be completely blunt about it because uh, we're learning more and more as, as modern science has allowed us to analyze things um, far more astutely and in, in, in particularly in, in terms of detail. And like you pointed out with McGovern, what McGovern's done with a lot of archaeochemical and archaeobotanical analysis to look at what's actually in these containers, we're learning that they went through very rigorous processes to create their their beverages. They did not just produce one style of beer. In many instances, they produced dozens. I mean, when you look at Sumerian beer, Egyptian beer, it, the Egyptians uh, have 15, 20 different beer styles that we can name by name that they gave different titles to. Same in the Greco-Roman world. And this is all a product of in, of curiosity, right? And experimenting with new beer styles and a concern for quality and flavor. You don't, you don't put that much effort into creating all of these different things unless you actually care about it. And I think that's one of the biggest things. I also think that in setting aside this idea that they were you know, backwards, archaic, rudimentary cavemen producing this, which is just not the case. Um, they also arguably um, were maybe better brewers than we are in a lot of ways today in the sense that they didn't have all of the fancy stainless steel equipment and electronics and all this stuff where we can just push a button and make it go and let the equipment do it for you. They had to be far more involved with the, with what they were doing. They um, Because beer was often transported, especially by the Egyptians or even Romans later on, um, they had to uh, be very hands-on with ensuring that the quality was maintained, uh, that it was shipped properly, that they didn't lose product. And so the, that, that kind of all together, I think, is probably one of the biggest misnomers about beer in the ancient world. Well, and, and I'll go a step further. I think it's one of the biggest – it's one of the things I've had the longest rant about, like whenever you see people talk about uh, 
uh, say the ancient alien or yeah, alien astronaut yeah, yeah. type hypothesis because it, it's this very weird colonial progressive view of human history that our ancestors were stupid yep. and we're smarter. Yeah, you know, exactly. No, it's our ancestors were just as smart as we were. We just have a better, broader base of knowledge built up by them. That that is definitely true. And yeah, I think it's it's kind of funny. I saw a meme about ancient aliens once, and it had you know the host of the show, and all it said was, "I don't know, therefore aliens." Right? Exactly. And that's that's often like how it gets quantified. Is if we can't explain it, you pass it off as something that was some kind of superculture or supernatural activity, which is complete you know malarkey and then and then when you when you think about um yeah the the the, their capabilities are really quite astounding when we think back on it and um also like just the their their capabilities in regards to scale and industrialization of these products in ways that we just never thought possible and that's becoming even more prevalent today to be honest well, and I was just thinking, you, you'd you mentioned the caves in Israel were, were pushing back the history of beer. And to the point of industrialization, I was thinking there was just that story published earlier this year about, where was it, Iraq? They found the 4,000-year-old the tavern or whatever it was. Yep, yep. Yeah, and thinking about, like, you know, that's a lot of effort in order to put that together. And also, strangely, very familiar. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, it's, and those stories are becoming far more prevalent as um, one, you know, we're, we're getting more access and exposure to some of these locations, especially in the Near East or what we call the Middle East today that have been off limits for several decades due to, you know, military strife and war. And then um, again, science helping drive it forward. And one, one that comes to mind immediately for me is uh, Egypt. I mean, um, I teach a, a lot of material on ancient Egypt at, in my, my other job, and I teach a course on Egyptian archaeology. And um, it was actually just in 2021, February 2021, they found a brewery in Abidos, which is a royal cemetery that's immense in scale. Um, it, it and it it's called it's caused all of these questions to start um, kind of matriculating out of it because it dates to 3000 BCE, which is the very beginning of pharaonic rule. We're talking very first pharaohs of Egypt, yet they were producing beer on about 120 barrel batch scales. Jeez. And I mean, this is insane. And it's like, well, okay, all of a sudden, that's a level of industrialization that we never knew existed in the ancient world for beer. It starts to make us think about distribution of beer in Egypt, which means that not everybody's just got, you know, mom and pop brewing it on the stove and back, right? right. And um, it's at a cemetery. So what are they doing with all this beer? Is it all for religious ceremony? Is it something that's being distributed? And then also, I think it's uncanny that it arrives right around the same time that the pharaohs do. And was it a state-governed you know, uh, process slash commodity? Uh, and all of these things that start coming about as we learn more and more about it paints this far more robust and uh, and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I suppose you might say complicated and complex approach to beer production, distribution, and sale than we've ever given them credit for. That blows my mind. 120 barrel. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's the vast majority of craft breweries in America aren't doing that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's just, it's phenomenal. And um, one thing that, that I've been arguing as of late since that came out is that I really think the Egyptians are probably the first to industrialize beer because uh, even in, in our, their Mesopotamian counterparts, they were making larger scale 
uh, batches of beer, but it was still largely for consumption, like you pointed out, in taverns and things like that, where they would uh, end up, you know, kind of recessed containers and floors, and you have this communal gathering to drink the beverage. And, uh, you know, we're dealing maybe more on the scale of like 20 to 40 gallons at a time, not 120 barrels. Yeah, see, that picture, the 20 to 40 gallons is like, when I think about ancient brewing, that's the size I'm thinking that, you know, yeah. that, that yeah. are smaller. Like, the idea that's 120 barrels is mind-blowing. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And so a lot more to come, a lot of interesting things coming out of that. And again, it's one of those mysteries. I think one of the things that um, is really exciting about being a beer historian right now um, is that, you know, the, the commodity, the drink um, has been taken for granted for so long, right? That as you started out with, Drew, in, in our conversation, it really is something that makes us human, in my in my opinion. Um, it's something that, that ties our, our civilization, our societies together. And honestly, I think beer affects us all in some way. Even those who choose not to consume beer have to make a choice not to do it, right? And, and when you go all the way back um, throughout history, that's always been the case. And you look at, um, uh, you know, the beer as it's been produced, you know, st- starting in ancient uh, Israel and moving forward, it is one of these things that is far more complex than we give it credit for. And it's at the same time, it's been so misunderstood because the ancients hardly ever wrote about it. And it's because to them, it was just something that existed. You know, it's like no different than glass of milk. You know, you don't, there aren't many books out there on milk. Kurlansky wrote one a few years ago, but you aren't going to find a whole bunch of books just written about the culture of milk, you know, or, or the paperclip or something like that. And it's because we take it for granted. And that's what has happened throughout history to the modern era with beer. So let me ask you, when I think about civilizations as just like an amateur nerd, nerdy type, not somebody professional at it. Yeah. I think of like, okay, you got the Babylonians, the Sumerians, and the Egyptians, right? And they're all heavily mm-hmm. they're all heavily beer based. Sure. Right. And then yep. somehow that history gets crushed by that that whole rise of the Greco Roman world, it feels like. Right. Yeah. You know, right. And like you know, we go from look, our first civilizations are all beer based, and then at least from my amateur's knowledge of it, like it doesn't feel like the the Greeks and the Romans really liked beer at all and, and gave it any respect. Yeah, and and that's that actually is a um exactly the way that that I I think most people view it to be honest. And and that's because of the, that's the presentation that the Greeks and Romans themselves give. I mean, uh from from a Greek perspective, the Greek part of the puzzle is actually one of the most difficult to um to find, to, to answer, to refine, because um, we're finding more evidence. And I've done, I started doing work on this in 2015. We've been finding more and more evidence of what appears to be um, small scale beer production in Bronze Age, in the Bronze Age Aegean. So, you know, we're talking the period of like the Minoans, Mycenaeans, right? Trojans, um, a time prior to any kind of like a unified Greece yet. But then when you get into the later era, say, 8th century BCE moving forward, the Greeks really don't write about beer. Um, uh, they don't talk about it. We, don't, we've, we find very little archaeological evidence of it. Uh, there are a few authors. Um, Xenophon's one of them who talks about beer, but he almost seems to describe it as something that is done in foreign lands, especially in Anatolia or modern-day Turkey. And... Um, as of right now, the best we, that I can explain for that is that the, the Greek world does seem to have really been a region that was so dominated by the grape 
that beer wasn't even really a necessity. I mean, they uh, grapevines and olive trees grow really, really well in Greek terrain, and it was their largest export commodity. It's what put them on the world economic map was wine and olive oil. So uh, it seems that the Greeks um, were aware of it, but they saw it as something that was typically on the fringe territories. They either referenced places like Thrace and Illyrium and these kind of locations in Anatolia or Eastern Europe, but not Greece. The Romans um, borrow that that idea a little bit, but one thing that is Wait, really curious... The, the, the Romans borrowed everything from Greece. <laughs> Yes, exactly. They very much, they very much did. They borrowed religion, everything, right? They they stole it in a lot of ways. And uh, the Romans, what's curious about them, is that uh, a lot of the literature again does not seem to promote the idea that they consume beer. But the problem with that, and one of the things I think we have to be cautious with, is that when we look at all the literature that we have from the Greek or Roman world. Um, it's very limited. Mm-hmm. Um, probably 15% or less of all the books that are written in antiquity still exi- exist or survive for us to read today. Um, if you think about the Library of Alexandria, it's been thought that maybe 11 to 15% of those texts still, still remain. So we're missing a huge chunk of what was written. Two, only 1% of the population was literate and could read and write. Therefore, the lens that we're viewing the ancient world through in a literary context is so, so, so minimal, right? It's so narrow. You're and, talking about the wealthy. intellectually elite. sniffy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, only the wealthy are educated. So you've got a bunch of aristocratic males, it should be noted, very few, if any, females writing about it, even though the women were doing most, almost all the brewing back then with a few cultural exceptions. And it's just something that's essentially lost um, due to that elitism. You know, um, I've said this in several interviews before, but I love saying it. You know, just imagine if we left it up to the upper 1% male population of our nation to write all of our history and somebody reads that 2,000 years from now. You know, I mean, it would just be so bastardized and, and, and missing key points of information. And it wouldn't actually be voicing uh, the, the, it wouldn't be voicing the opinions or the knowledge of the people that actually produce these kind of commodities. And so we're lucky that we have some authors from the Roman world who did write about beer, like Pliny the Elder, um, or some of the agriculturalists like uh, Columella or Varro, or um, even some of the doctors like Diodorus Siculus and Dioscorides and things of that nature who would reference beer. They might scoff at it. They might say that it's not as good as wine, but they do give us enough description that we can start discerning, okay, there are a lot of different beer styles that do exist within the Roman world. They're just not being consumed by the wealthy elite. And I think also with the Romans, where that becomes so complicated and complex is that, you know, Rome got so big, right? I mean, by, uh, by the second century BCE, they controlled all of the Mediterranean except Egypt. By 30 BCE, they took that as well. And what Rome was includes all these territories that were actively and avidly producing beer, whether it be Egypt or Celtic Gaelic territories in modern-day France, Belgium, Britain, Germany. Uh, though they never conquered Germany, they were in contact with the Germans often, who were large uh, producers of beer and consumers of beer. So the beer was there, and so a lot of it's trying to, again, kind of take this eclectic approach to the topic and say, all right, I'm going to look at the literature, but I also need to see the archaeobotanical analysis, the architecture, the art, the anthropology of the time, to try to piece that story back together. Yeah. It, it's always felt sort of weird to me because the Romans 
or Roman society, as it was always taught to me, was that it was very accepting of local traditions, just basically as long as you didn't cause trouble and yep. paid your taxes. Which, but then I think the other thing is, I'm getting a sense that there is also always that sense of, oh, well, that's very provincial. Yeah, and that, that's an excellent point, Drew. I mean, that, and that's kind of uh, a lot of what I'm alluding there to uh, as well is that it is provincial. You're right. I mean, you get outside of Italy, and that's when you start to run into the beer cultures. I mean, uh, Pliny the Elder talks about the Iberian peoples having various styles of beer. So we know beer was produced in Spain and Portugal. We know it was being produced in, uh, you know, Gaul, modern-day France, Belgium, these kind of places. But it is largely discussed as something that's provincial. And one of the interesting um, uh, discoveries that actually um, came out uh, quite recently, it was in a publication that I think came out in 2020 or 2021, talking about the wine industry in the ancient Roman world, is that um, the the Romans uh, were importing vast, vast volumes of wine from the Eastern Mediterranean until the 2nd century BCE. And a new theory that started to um, kind of um, form is that it's very possible that viticulture did not exist in Italy prior to the second century BCE, which means that they weren't producing much wine. There weren't these massive vineyards in Italy uh, until maybe the 160s to 140s BCE, so some 600 years into Roman history. And all of a sudden, when that happens, when viticulture sets in, it now is the drink of the nation, right? And that's where it's everywhere. And most of the authors we have, actually all of the authors that we have that comment on food and alcohol in particular, post-date that. And so it would have been really curious to see um, and have a voice of the people who lived prior to the rise of viticulture in Italy because it might have been a totally different landscape in terms of alcohol consumption. I love the fact that we that we don't actually have all this figured out. It's fascinating. <laughs> I know. It gives, at least it employs me, right? At least I got a job out of it, so it's good. <laughs> All right. Well, obviously, if people want to know more about the Roman attitude about beer, they can go and listen to your talk at HomebrewCon, or if they're not going to be in San Diego, they can always download it later as a member of the HA. Yes. Um, if you were going to pick one thing that you've learned about the history of fermentation, one story about the history of fermentation uh, across human history, what's your favorite, you think? Oh, that is such a good question, because uh, there are so many of them, to be honest. But I think um, it, it, staying in the Roman vein, I mean, like what I talked about a little bit earlier about the Egyptian brewery that came about in 2021, that's been one of the most exciting things, I think, to see the scale of brewing um, in a way that we never thought we would encounter. And this is, uh, you know, the doors just keep opening and we're not closing that many when it comes to, to beer archaeology and beer research. We keep finding new things that lead to even more questions. And that's what's so exciting. But I think in the Roman vein, um, one of the most exciting things that I found thus far is, uh, though I'm an archaeologist and a history teacher, and of course, you know, I teach plenty of classes that talk all about the emperors and all about the pharaohs and that kind of thing. What's always been of greatest interest to me is the story of the average person. I want to know what someone like me would have been doing or eating or producing in the ancient world. And for the Romans, as that story's coming more and more together, for me, um, it seems that uh, beer was uh, really a social glue that not only kept populations together, but especially kept the troops happy in a lot of ways. And I think that the military... 
Uh, the Roman military was largely responsible for the survival of Ro- of beer um, during Roman occupation, but also for that industry to continue to thrive. And um, one of my favorite stories comes from uh, Vindolanda. So Vindolanda is a Roman military camp on Hadrian's Wall in Britain. Uh, Hadrian's Wall, 80-mile stretch, coast to coast, built to keep the Picts to the north, which who basically became the Scots later on, while the Romans occupied all of lower UK. And we have these um, wonderful letters that are preserved in the soil there um, that are mostly, a lot of them are just receipts and ledgers for commodities that were being brought into the camp. But we actually hear the soldiers calling for beer. They want the good stuff, too. They'll, they actually they actually use terms of quality for the beer. They name brewers by name, which is amazing. Yeah, there's a, there's a brewer by the name of Trectus. They asked for the beer from Trectus a couple of times. It's just fabulous. And... Um, again, that, that's been so exciting, and it's an ongoing study. It's an ongoing archaeological site where more and more stuff is coming out, and we're learning just how important beer really was um, for the average Roman soldier. And what I think is even more fascinating about it is we're learning more about who those men were. And they weren't Roman in the sense that they weren't from Italy. Like, almost all of them are either from Britain itself or they're from as far away as Syria. And so beer is working within the Roman military camps as a social glue for these guys that couldn't be more geographically removed from one another in their heritage, but have been forced to fight together for a Roman cause. And we have Dalmatians, we have Syrians, we have British, and some, some Italians, all fighting shoulder by shoulder. And I think it's just so cool because it shows that the ancients are no different than we are. That's the beauty of beer, right? Is it's a social glue. It is something we like to consume together. You know, I think we all, you know, glass of wine here or there, that's something you do with maybe a significant other. I love wine too, but it's usually more intimate. You give me my glass of scotch at night, I don't want to talk to anybody, right? I'm going to sit down, read my book and leave me alone. But beer, we do it together. And that's one of the most uh, rewarding stories that I've, I've discovered thus far in all this. Well, I'm just trying to think, if I'm sitting my butt on a freezing cold wall or a camp, <laughs> you know, facing Scotland, you know, yeah. in the middle of winter, and you gave me a choice between a glass of wine or a big damn mug of beer, <laughs> I think I'm going for the beer. You're damn right. And I agree wholeheartedly, right? And again, it's what makes us human. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, I love the fact that there's records actually calling out brewers by name. Yeah. Uh, what was that name again? His name is Atrectus. It's A-T-R-E-C-T-U-S. There's also another brewer that's referenced in some of the tablets by the name of Tertius. And uh, another brewer by the name of Tertius was also found on an artifact in London recently. So we're starting to actually find out their names. And um, even over in Egypt, we know of one brewer. His name was Kansu Imheb. He was a royal, he brewed for the royal family. Um, but as we're actually finding these guys, right, they're real people. It's not just some amorphous brewer, right, some metaphoric idea out there. They're real people that are brewing good beer. I'm just waiting for the day when you guys pull up a tablet that reveals, you know, that there's an immortal brewer named Dinicus. <laughs> yes, exa- uh, I can't wait for that. <laughs> you know, my name comes from Dionysus. There you go. Hey, I love it. <laughs> hey, that, that man knew how to party. That's right, man. <laughs> <laughs> Well, wait, who's so uh, Dionysus and then what is Selenius? Was that the 
for so Silenus was uh, one of his followers. Right. He's this, uh, yeah, yeah, he's uh, like a satyr like follower. Um, but yeah, he was always causing debauchery and things as well. But yes, uh, Dionysus, you know, the god of wine. It's interesting too. There's another deity that's come to light. Um, actually, they started start being studied more in like the 70s, but he's a guy named Sabasius, um, who originates um, in East northeastern Europe, um, probably more like where Phrygia is today, at, or Phrygia was in the ancient world. And he is thought to potentially be like the beer version of Dionysus in the area. He's a phenomenally bizarre deity that we're still trying to figure out. <laughs> yep. I love how weird humanity is. <laughs> <laughs> so now we've talked about the, the these brewers. We've talked about some of the ancient world. If you – and you said, what, you did 10 ancient beverages with Avery? Yes. Yep. All right. So one – is there a favorite of those that you did? There is. Um, it's not one of my super ancient ones, though. I'll be honest. Uh, my favorite was George Washington Porter. So I uh, did a bunch of research on the the brown beer, the dark beer that he was purchasing from uh, Alexandria right outside of Mount Vernon and then also from Philadelphia and recreated uh, that beer. Again, a lot of it was the process doing wood fermentation, um, more kind of uh, at, you know, at, at the behest of nature, right, and the elements. Uh, but it turned out great. So that was probably Probably my favorite, my most drinkable, I think, out of them, uh, even though it's far more recent. And I do, I mean, even though a lot of my work, most of my work is in the ancient world, I do research all the way up to, uh, I just finished a, uh, doing research on a project for Rob Todd at Allagash on World War I Belgian brewing, in fact. So um, all kinds of good stuff in the modern era, too. Back before the Belgians started to really brew strong. Yes. Now, if you could, let's say you had a time machine. Mm-hmm. That allowed you to stick your arm through back into history and grab a mug of something. Any ancient beverage out there in the world that you wanted to try, what would you grab um, for? That, uh, that's a tough one because I feel like there are several, right? Especially since like doing this, doing the research and trying to do these recreations, I think I'm getting as close as I can, but am I really? You know, is kind of the question. And there are a couple that come to mind, but probably the one I'm most curious about um, is from Gerbeckli Tepe. So place that many, uh, yeah, it sounds like you guys are very aware. Um, uh, listeners not, might not be, but you, so you might want to explain that. Sure, sure. Um, Gerbeckli Tepe uh, is this uh, very bizarre site in southeastern Turkey uh, that dates to about 9,500 to 9,000 BCE. It's been thought to be probably an epicenter for uh, ancestor worship during a period um, where the Natufians were um, kind of dominating the landscape in what we'd consider the ancient Near East. And the Natufians were hunter-gatherers, uh, but they actually were sedentary, meaning though they went out and hunted and gathered, they still came back to their same locations on a fairly regular basis um, for where they lived and things of that, cooked their food. Um, but Gerbekli Tepe had no permanent housing around it at all it wasn't a it wasn't a city it wasn't a community it was some kind of nomadic stop off on an annual basis to worship ancestors and uh there's been uh uh Dr. McGovern spoke about uh, Gerbeckli Tepe and some of his writings um, back in the early 2000s, uh, and more and more information is coming out of that in, per- in regards to large-scale 
food and drink production for these religious festivals. And um, I would love to taste that beer because there's very compelling evidence that's come out uh, in 2021 indicating that they were brewing beer on a 40 to 42 gallon batch size for these religious festivals. And I'm curious because uh, as we can only hypothesize and we'll never know, we wonder what kind of effects some of these things had on you. Um, you know, were they putting some kind of hallucinogenics in there that might have been causing some kind of fervor or frenzy? We, we don't know. Also, you know, um, our botanicals and our, our grasses and grains that we use in beer and our fermentables have changed. I mean, they've evolved significantly over the last 11,000 years. And I'm really curious what a beer would have tasted like that was made with wheat 11,000 years ago that was wild. You know, finding wild grains anymore, grasses, um, to, to actually produce uh, beer out of can be really difficult. And so I think that would be super cool. I will say as a follow-up, there's one that I'm not particularly interested in trying, and that's the Egyptian Enema beer. I'm okay passing on that one. <laughs> I can't imagine why. And, <laughs> and, and just to, if I remember correctly, what, uh, Gorbeka Taipei is like 7,000 BCE? It's uh, it's actually ninety five hundred to nine thousand BCE. Yeah, so way, way, way back there. Yep, you got it. Yeah, I just remember reading because what it's on a hill, right? It's almost like yep, it's almost like a an actual human uh, temple in Skyrim. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's a, it's a mound of earth that had been built up by human hands for many, many, many generations and centuries where they build these um, ritualistic circles out of stone, these monolithic plinths that they put up. And as of, as of now, the best we can discern is that it's some kind of ancestor worship. Um, I teach a course at the university on the archaeology of death, and uh, it's always a fascinating study because all that's been found there in terms of human remains are skulls. <laughs> and it's thought that, yeah, and it's thought that it might be some kind of skull cult um, that is pointed directly at these specific um, ancestors within the community, but no other human remains have ever been found there. So it's really quite bizarre. See, now I'm trying to think about what archaeologists in the future would think if they run across some of those, uh, like the Catholic catacombs with all the, oh, yeah. all the skulls and the cathedrals, yep. middle skulls. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, like the Capuchin monks and stuff like that, too, in, in Italy. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it, one wonders, you know, if we don't have all of this heavy documentation because we're so hyper-literate right now, right? But if that's all gone, I mean, what the hell do you do with that? So, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. The three stones making a wall. That yeah, Exactly. Yep. yep. You got it. Um, yep. <laughs> all right. Now, so this is a lot of a, a lot of history, and God, I hope people came along with us on this one because I'm having fun. And I could literally talk about this forever in the damn day because i love it um you already but, have well that's not true it's only been about an hour um so practically speaking um and with all this breadth of, of knowledge of what, we, what we've been doing for humans uh beverage needs mm -hmm. but from a modern point of view from a practical point of view of i'm a goofball with a brewery yeah. Apparently not brewing as much as the Egyptians did. <laughs> what can I take away from what has been discovered about historical brewing? Yeah, that's a that's another uh, fantastic question, Drew. It's actually one that I I don't get asked very often. I didn't even know if I'd been asked it before. And what I like about that question is I think by studying ancient beer, at least for me, and one of the 
most beneficial aspects of it when I was directing the innovation team at Avery was that it provided a lot of innovation for me, right? Um, as soon as we break down these very, um, you know, kind of obtuse barriers uh, where we think that the ancients didn't know what they were doing, that every beer tasted the same or that it tasted totally horrible and was like this porridge-like sludge, which many textbooks published, mm-hmm. academic textbooks published in the in the first half of the 20th century about ancient beer, if you actually look at the ancient brews, conduct the experimental brewing as well, or the experimental archaeology, as we call it, of trying to recreate these things, you start to realize that, no, this stuff's actually pretty damn good. It is Some of it's tra- drastically bizarre, right? It's very strange. It's not what you're going to expect out of a beer often. But it's really quite good. And all of a sudden, you start wondering and thinking, wow, how could I use that ingredient in a Pilsner, or maybe not a Pilsner Pale Ale, right? Or a, a wheat beer. What kind of flavor additive is that kind of compound going to add as an adjunct? Or what if I do try to do, um, you know, fermentation in an unconventional container, whether it be wood or ceramics or stone, for that matter? And all of a sudden, back to what we started this conversation with, your definition of beer goes from something that might be really small in scope to just exploded out to all kinds of variables that are at play. And this is one of the reasons why, right? We have, what, 9,000 craft breweries in the United States. It's why there's tens of thousands of us that homebrew. Um, this is why the, there's always something new. It's why the BJCP has to add new categories uh, all the time. It's because we figure out ways to use ingredients in new and unique ways. And looking at the past, You'll revive, you'll revisit things that in some instances have not been used in beer or used um, in that specific way in beer for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And that's what I think is wonderful. I mean, it's like, you know, that old adage about, you know, um, you know, history repeats itself because oftentimes people don't look back at history and learn and study from it. Uh, and that's why we're always destined to have it repeat in usually the most negative of ways. Well, this is an instance where history can repeat itself in a very positive way uh, and uh, create a lot of new avenues for us brewers who are typically very experimental and innovative minded to begin with. There you go. I would say more saffron and radishes and beer, less marshmallow <laughs> flavor extract and lactose. I'm there with you, 100%. <laughs> All right. Denny, do you have any questions before we before we end this thing? Uh, no, I'm still trying to uh, grok what I just heard. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so just for people to remember, uh, again, I, I'm not sure if we're releasing this ahead of HomebrewCon or if we're going to release after HomebrewCon, but uh, Travis is giving a talk at HomebrewCon on Caesar's Cerevasia, uh, and you'll be able to watch that there. Or if you're an AHA member, you'll be able to download the presentation later and be able to uh, learn more about ancient beer and beverages. And uh, I would argue also the impact they could have on modern life. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure, and thank you for having me on. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this look at actual beer history. The beverage, or maybe process, has united people for millennia and continues to inspire all sorts of wacky hijinks. What do you want to learn from our historical brewers? Now, remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at Denny at experimentalbrew.com or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit. 
and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is still to be determined. Until next time, remember the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. The next generation of countertop home distillation systems is here. The all-new Airstill Pro from Still Spirits is a revolutionary still that will look right at home alongside your everyday kitchen appliances. This small-batch 2-in-1 distillation system operates in either pot still or reflex mode and allows you to craft high-quality light and dark spirits at home. No hoses, no complicated assembly, just plug-and-play. The Airstill Pro column cools itself with a built-in high-powered fan. The Still Spirits Airstill Pro is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer. Learn more about the Airstill Pro at stillspirits.com or check them out on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube.